And let me invite you to grab your Bible right now where you're at and turn to the New Testament book of John. If you don't have a Bible, we have ushers that are going to be coming around the worship center right now. I would invite you to raise your hand and let one of our ushers know that you need a Bible. These Bibles are a gift from us here at Reach Church to you. They're yours to have and to keep. Just raise your hand let them know you'd like one. We're going to be in John chapter 4. The easiest way to find this is going to be at the front of your Bible, the table of contents. Or you can go a little more than halfway through your Bible. There'll be a list of names, a collection of names. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, also known as the Gospels. We're going to continue in our worship series today. And we're going to look at worship as compartmentalization. Worship as compartmentalization. Before we do, I have a question. Parents in particular, how many of you have finished with your Christmas shopping? Raise your hand if that's you. All right. How many of you wait until December 23rd? Yeah, that's me. That's, that's, I own that. I, I own that. That's me. How many of you cheapskates wait until after Christmas? I mean, I mean, how many of you frugal people wait until after Christmas and look for the best sales? No? Anybody? All right. How many of you will wait until after Christmas to get ornaments and lights and things like that? Yeah? So we got halfway done hanging lights and realized that, that the other half that goes above our garage don't work. We went to replace them with in-kind lights, but they don't make them. Apparently it's just an annual thing. They only make it one time. They're one and done. I went and got lights from the same brand, but different colors apparently. My wife said that's unacceptable. You can't have one house, uh, one side of the house looking one way and the other house looking another way. I said, well, we can do one of two things. We can go buy all new lights and hang them now. And before I could even finish, she said, no, 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 we're not going to do lights this year. We're going to wait until after Christmas and buy all new lights. So she's going to take advantage of the post-Christmas 70% off sale, which makes no sense because they won't work next year when I go to put them up either. I just, <laughs> it is what it is. How many of you really appreciate a Christmas wish list? You like to operate off of needs, desires, wants, expectations, that kind of thing. How many of you parents could care less what people ask for? You're going to get them what you want. How many of you have just conceded that a gift certificate is the absolute best way to go at this point in your life? I think it, I heard an amen. He's an empty nester. It's just easier to let the adults do their thing. Yeah. I'm of the opinion that I'm going to buy you what I want and you're going to deal with it. We have uh, six kids, if you don't know that, five daughters. And we have a wish list that is based on multiple compartmentalizations, needs, wants, expectations, desires, hopes, dreams, whatever you would call it. Our 15-year-old, when asked to put together a list put together a Google document and I'm not exaggerating. I had to have Caleb Everman, our worship pastor, come over this week and help me understand what a Google doc is, how to build one and how to share it with others. And at the end, it seemed too complex. I just grabbed my pen and wrote it on a piece of paper and said, here, photocopy this and give it to the staff. My 15 year old daughter not only built a Google doc, but she compartmentalized everything on this list based on what she wanted from the greatest to the least what she needed from the greatest to the least, and she had a hyperlink to every single ask. She was trying to make it easier on us. All, Carson, all I have to do is literally click the link. It takes me to an Amazon cart where I can just simply select pay now, check out, and they ship it to me. And I have an option of having them wrap it. Who knew? This is crazy. It's all compartmentalized and you can literally go down the list that my daughter has created and click, select a box 
And it just lets us know that it's been taken care of. It's been purchased. It's been bought. How convenient. That is so thoughtful of her. <laughs> My wife looked at that and thought, well, this is really helpful. I looked at it and said, this is stupid. Well, what, 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 like, what happened to the parents, young parents? Let me speak to you for a moment. The youngest child that I have now is six years old. The, the rest are, are old and getting older. They only get more expensive as they get older. I remember a time, and this is real life. I remember a time, parents, when I would go Christmas shopping and our kids were young enough where we would put them in the Christmas basket cart that we had, right, designated for Christmas presents, walk down the aisle, and they would begin to point at things. We just took an oversized jacket, put the presents in the cart, and put the jacket over the top, and they were surprised on Christmas Day that they got everything they wanted. <laughs> now, we spent a majority of our time in the dollar aisle, big lots and, and the dollar tree, dollar general, those kinds of things. But they got, it, it was just so much easier. But as they get older, our budget has, has looked very different. You cannot get by with an 18-year-old boy on $50. I, I mean, unless you're going to buy him some Spider-Man underwear and some toothpaste for the rest of his life. I don't know what you're going to do. So I'm looking at this. And the way I shop for my son now is I walk into the store and I say, give me what I would have worn in the 70s. Or I say, and this is real life, for his birthday, I walked in, I said, give me the most expensive, ugliest pair of Nike shoes you have. They took me over. They got me this white pair with reflective neon, like ugly. I brought them home, gave them to him for his birthday. He's like, dad, these are amazing, best shoes ever. He comes to church wearing them. Youth pastor, Russell Seymour, he says, dude, those are lit. I would wear those. Those are dripping. I said, well, you need to clean that up. They weren't intended to drip and they're not intended to be lit. They were just, oh, geez, God help us. I digress. We put together lists. We compartmentalize the things that we desire, the things that we want and the things that we think that we need. And I wonder if this isn't our approach to worship. Do we come to church with the list of things that we desire to get out of worship? Do we come to church with the list of things that we think are expected of us when it comes to worship? Today we're gonna to look at how we approach worship and what happens when we live out worship as a byproduct of our faith in our lives as followers of Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would empower me now to speak your truth in relevant ways that are absolutely absolutely consistent with your scripture. Help me, Lord, to preach and teach in ways that are equally authentic and accurate as they are understandable and applicable. God, today we're going to be challenged to think about worship and to think about how we think of worship and approach worship, compartmentalize worship, and what it looks like. As we jump into this text now, Lord, I pray that it would come alive in us as your word goes out I hold tightly to your promise that it will not return void. For every heart and every ear that is going to listen to these words of yours today, whether here at our Blair campus or online, God, I pray that you would engage with us. Holy Spirit, move. Move in us. Meet us where we're at and take us to where you want us to go. For those of us who are saints in our faith, that we've been traveling and journeying with you for a long time, God, I pray that we would read this text today in a brand new way, and that we would walk out of here, each one of us saying, wow, I never knew, I never knew that faith could look like this. And change how we see you 
and how we see the way we live our lives as followers of you, Jesus. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be received as a gift, equally holy and pleasing to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. In John, the gospel of John is very unique from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're called the synoptic gospels because there's a synopsis between Matthew and Mark and Luke's account of what happens. The storylines are very similar. The stories of what takes place are very similar. The people are very similar. John, son of Zebedee, brother of James, writes his gospel. And a gospel is really the good news message. The Greek word is euangelion, which means the, the celebrated message or the good news, the message that it declares the goodness of God to all humanity. John writes his account of Jesus' life and ministry from a place of understanding and application. And in John's gospel, we have what are known as seven signs or seven miracles and seven discourses or, or conversations. The reason that this is important to us as followers of Jesus is because we can look at it and we can see how God uses real life events, the miraculous and unbelievable conversations to make it understandable and relatable, applicable to our lives. It's a solidification that, that in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God, that this is Jesus Christ, God in, in flesh, in human form, the only begotten son of God given to us once and for all, for all. And we see through the events that take place and through the conversations that take place that Jesus is very real and that Jesus' message is very real. And it's real for us today. Well, Jesus starts his ministry and early on we see the first miracle. John chapter two, it's a wedding that takes place in Cana. Turning water into wine. There are people that are there at the wedding that aren't celebrating this miraculous feat. They're confused and many of them are threatened, the religious leaders. From there, Jesus is going to go into from Cana, he's going to travel through Galilee and Samaria into Jerusalem to the Holy Temple where he'll celebrate the Passover. But when he gets there, he sees religious people, people that are the most elite of followers of God, taking advantage of others who have come into the church to worship. They're doing crazy things. And let me just briefly explain. You see, it was expected that any God-fearing Jew that could make the journey would travel with their families and their servants and they would make the trip, this, this journey to the temple in Jerusalem for the Passover celebration. It was one of multiple times a year where they would come together collaboratively and collectively to celebrate God. But because of the long journey, a lot of times they wouldn't bring the sacrifice because of the requirements of, of tending to the, to the sacrifice, whatever it was, and just the hassle. And so they would wait until they got into Jerusalem and they would pay for the sacrifice that they were going to offer up. Well, because of this, these religious leaders in the church were price gouging. They had a monopoly on the market, as it were, and they were charging people astronomical amounts just to worship. They were taking advantage of those that came with innocent hearts, with intentionality to pursue God in the form of worship. And they were making a mockery of the house of God. 
Jesus sees that these people are being taken advantage of by the religious leaders and he goes into the temple with a whip and he drives these money changers out and he flips over tables and he declares that my house will not be a a den of thieves but will be a house of prayer. Well, you can imagine that that got the, the priests and the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders pretty upset. Everybody was concerned and many were confused by what was going on. Well, as a byproduct, there's a conversation that happens in John 3 with a man named Nicodemus. He's a religious leader who comes disguised in the night to have this amazing encounter with Jesus. And he learns all about a new life, being born again. And out of this amazing conversation, we see the disciples and others begin to murmur about John the Baptist and these words of Jesus. And it's all starting to come together Well, there's this competition that's taking place, almost like a competition between churches. Who has more people that attend their church? Who has the better music? Who's baptized more people? Who has the bigger facility? Who has more ministries? We don't deal with this in the 21st century Western culture, do we? But they did in Jesus' time. And there was this argument about John, the baptizer, and the people that were his disciples and the people that he was baptizing And Jesus and his disciples and the people that were following Jesus and those that they were baptizing. And John, John the Baptist actually prepares the way. And he lets people know that what he's been doing was a baptism by water to signify the the, the washing away of the sins. But that there would be one that it was coming that would baptize in a whole new manner. And it would change the trajectory of the faith as we know it. What we pick up now is literally on the heels of that conversation in John chapter 4. This is an encounter with Jesus who has gone from Galilee to Jerusalem and now is going to make his way back up north to Galilee again. Jesus, in John chapter 4 verse 1, Jesus knew the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing and making more disciples than John. Though Jesus himself didn't baptize them, his disciples did. So he left Judea and he returned to Galilee. He had to go through Samaria on the way. And eventually he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. You can read about that in Genesis chapter 33 after Jacob is reconciled to Esau. Genesis chapter 33. In verse 6 it says, Jacob's well was there, one that he had purchased. And Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. One thing I want to do is I want to go back to verse 4 for just a second because it's going to give some more context to our conversation today. In verse 4 it said, he had to go through Samaria on the way. If I could encourage you to circle or underline anything in this text, it might be this one verse, that he had to go through Samaria. There's some context that is important to our conversation today. And if I had an opportunity to draw for you a map of Asia Minor and what Jesus is doing here, it would be incredible to see. At the far northern part is Galilee. And in Galilee, you've got the Sea of Galilee. And just below the Sea of Galilee, between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea, is a community of the region of Samaria. And below Samaria is the the Dead Sea, but then we've got Judea, and in Judea is Jerusalem. In Samaria is a group of individuals that culturally were considered half-breeds. They were considered 
a, a defiled people. What happened was the Assyrians came in to that region and they had taken over. And as a byproduct, they had made exiles of a majority of the Jews at that time, but they left some Jews behind to help keep an established community. But they brought in the Assyrians to run that region. What happened over time is the Assyrians began to intermarry with the Jews. This was considered extremely taboo. It was not something that was supposed to happen. And we look at this and on the surface, according to what we deal with almost every day on the news and on social media and in chat platforms across the world right now, we would look at this and we would feel very, very, very anxious about what we were seeing, that the Jews couldn't marry the Assyrians and the Assyrians weren't supposed to marry the Jews. The reason is that for Jews, God had set them apart as a nation unto themselves. And, and as a nation unto themselves, he gave them a list of rules and regulations, not prohibitive, but protective to help establish what a relationship between Yahweh and humanity looked like. To protect the hearts of the people, he insisted that they not marry outside of their own because all of the other nations surrounding them were polytheistic. They worshiped multiple deities iterations of gods that they had created for themselves. They did not worship the creator, they worshiped the created, the things that they created for themselves. The Assyrians were no exception to this rule. They had all kinds of idolatry running rampant in their communities, in their households. And so when the Jews and the Assyrians inter intermixed, when they got married, idolatry was introduced all the more into the culture of God's people that were to be set apart. And so now God-fearing Jews that held tightly to the law would look at those in Samaria as a people that were not entire, that were not complete. They were a half breed of people. They were a mixed breed of people. There was this racial tension, but even greater than the racial tension was this religious division. And we're gonna see as we continue to read this text that there's a your way and a my way, a haves and a have nots. So the, the context is set now. You've got this group of people that by the Jews are considered unclean and defiled. There was so much resentment between Jews and the Samaritans, these Gentile people. And there was so much religiosity that was precedent on that time that God-fearing Jews, when they needed to get from Judea, the region of Judea, and above Samaria to the region of Galilee had one of two alternative routes they would take. And a majority of the time, they would go east of the Jordan River. They would cross over the Jordan River or they would drop down below the Dead Sea and would come up and around the Decapolis and around the Sea of Galilee at the top just to avoid even touching the soil that the Samaritans occupied. Can you imagine having so much hatred in your heart for another individual? that you would go and add days and days and days to your journey just to avoid any type of contact with an individual. The other way, the alternative way would be what they call the coastal highway. And it was to the far west. They would walk up along the Mediterranean Sea up by Mount Olive and, and, and would do everything they could to avoid contact with the Samaritans. And so here, when you've got Jesus 
and his disciples and this journey. And in verse four, it said he had to go through Samaria. What we see then is that Jesus' mandate and his mission to bring the gospel and be the gospel to all people was more important than human expectation. Jesus had to go through Samaria. And eventually he comes to this village and in verse seven, we see a Samaritan woman came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, please give me a drink. And he was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. Two things very commonplace here. One, it was customary to be a, a good host of a visitor. It was responsibility of those around to take care of the needs of those who were traveling. And so this woman would have been expected to provide water for Jesus or whomever would have asked as a visitor. The fact that the disciples had gone into town to get food was also very customary. They would carry extra food along with them so that they could provide the needs of those that they were ministering to along the way. But now the conversation begins to unfold in a unique manner. Verse 9. The Samaritan woman was surprised for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. And she said to Jesus, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? And Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you were speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. The first thing that we see happen is really some skepticism, some speculation around the reasons why Jesus was even having this conversation with this Samaritan woman. There is so much history between the Jews, and we're talking centuries of history between the Jews and the Samaritans. This is unfounded. And so for a Jewish man to engage a Samaritan woman caused a lot of alarm and created great questions. Why are you talking to me? What, what, do you, what, do you, what do you want with me? What do you want from me? I don't understand this. You see, this is what happens when we go into a relationship with resentment. When we go into a relationship with baggage. When we go into a relationship with preconceived ideologies. And a lot of times they're not even things that we've established or created on our own. There are precedents that have been set before us. I joke often, but growing up, I was a Republican. And when people asked me why, I said, because my parents are. I hadn't studied any platform. I didn't know the difference between a Democrat or a Republican, between the left party and the right party. I didn't know their policies or, or how, they, how they carried themselves. I didn't know anything other than my parents believed one way. And so I must believe one way. I had ideologies in my own mind without ever doing research of my own. And I think that this is still true today, not just politically, but religionally, uh, religiously and relationally. Recently, as a church, we went and engaged and encountered another organization. And I, I will be very careful in how I present this. We're in the middle of this amazing initiative, Each One Bring One. And what God has done already has been supernatural. It's been miraculous. And I'm so excited that every cent that our church brings in out of radical generosity is going to go to help the orphans and the widows and the least of these, to help those who have tremendous need. We identified as a staff an organization that we wanted to partner with. And so four of us went and we engaged with this organization. 
And we offered to give them money. We offered to resource what they were doing. And we were met with resistance and we were flat out told, no, thank you. They wanted to know what the catch was. Why would a church do this? Why would a church want to engage another organization? What was, what was the catch? What, what, was it in it, what was in it for us? And when we explained to them that we loved what they were doing, we really appreciated the way that they were meeting the needs of the least of these in our community, and we wanted to partner with them and help them, they could not wrap their minds around a church wanting to give radically and generously because that's what we believe faith calls of us. And so they actually turned us down. Defeated at first. We didn't let up. We went to another organization, and they welcomed us in and said, yeah, keep, come on. How much you want to give us? Yes, come on in. Have a seat. We'd love to talk to you. I had never met the individuals from this organization before. But they already had a preconceived idea in their minds of who we were, of who I was. And what we, what we, we could not possibly want to just give resources away to this organization because that's just not what churches do. How many of us, how many of us live in this space where we base our decisions off of prejudices of others? This woman is absolutely confused by this. She has no idea why a Jewish man in Jesus would want anything to do with her. And we'll talk about why right now. Verse 10, Jesus replied, if, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you're speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. Who you're speaking to. We're going to see a progression of a relationship that is forged between this Samaritan woman and her understanding of Jesus. She starts off by identifying Jesus as a man and it, uh, just, just, just as, as a gentleman who's there for water, and then she moves from sir, she's going to refer to him as a Jew. And then Jesus is going to continue this conversation, and eventually she'll call him a prophet. And ultimately she will identify him as the Messiah, the anointed one. Jesus gives this conversation to her in a very matter-of-fact way, not too dissimilar to what he did with Nicodemus when he said that, if anybody wants to experience eternal life, they must be born again. And Nicodemus looks on the surface and he said, how is it possible that a man can, can reinvent himself inside of his mother's womb? It's, it's not possible. This woman is going to look at Jesus' statement very literally, very matter of fact. Verse 11, but sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket. And this well is very deep. According to today's standards, it still stands there today in the region of Galilee, in, or excuse me, in, in Samaria, in Sychar, right near the mountain of Gerizim. It's over 100 meters deep, which is over, I mean, it's, it's, just, it's just huge. She's looking at the situation on the surface and says, you don't have a rope or a bucket. How do you expect to get water? Where would you get this living water, she said. And, and verse 12, she said, and besides, do you think, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoy? In other words, she's living what she thinks is the best that she'll ever live. And how could Jesus, this Jew, come into Samaria and offer anything better than what she had known ancestrally? In verse 13, Jesus replies, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. Did you know that the human body is made up of 60% water? Did you know that the blood that runs through the human body is made up of 90% water? We need water 
to survive. We can go days, even weeks without food. But more than three days without water, most people will die. Water is necessary for life. In Maslow's hierarchy of needs, it would be right at the top. We need water to regenerate ourselves. We need water to fuel us. We need water to provide life, the very life that drives who we are. Now, Jesus is talking about this living water. He says, anybody who drinks this water, looking at this well, this Jacob's well, this ancestry well that has so many stories and so much history to it. Anybody who drinks this water will be thirsty again. You see, this well was not a cistern, but it wasn't much more. It was a collection of rainwater. There was no running water. There wasn't a babbling brook. There wasn't a river or a stream. It collected groundwater and rainwater, and it sat there. And at the deepest depths of it, it was, it was pure, but the top of it was, was considered dirty and unclean because it wasn't alive. It wasn't moving. It had nothing to oxidize the water or break up the bacteria. And so he looks at this very, very surface level and he says, anybody who drinks this water will become thirsty again. But look at verse 14. But those who drink the water that I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Oh, I love Jesus' wordplay here. I love how he takes something that in a dry, arid desert community would scream of life, of new, of fresh, refreshing. Jesus in this conversation with this woman says, the water that I'm speaking about has nothing to do with what you're pulling from the ground. It's a living water. It's something that is fresh and new and alive. And in fact, it's the life that is the life source for eternal life. It's the water that I bring. What he's referring to is a relationship with Jesus and that it quenches our dry and weary souls, not just our human bodies, but deeper than that, much longer than the human life. It's eternal life. Looking at verse 15, she says, please, sir, the woman said, give me this water and then I'll never be thirsty again and I won't have to come here to get water. There's two profound statements here. Please, sir, give me this water. She's looking at this invitation from Jesus and what she can get from it. This is now a matter of convenience for her. She is beginning to compartmentalize her life and she's gonna see two things that will change if she's able to receive the kind of water that she thinks Jesus is talking about. She, she is a part of a community that would have to walk miles twice a day from their communities and the surrounding communities to these wells that would be along a roadside. And they would come twice a day, first thing in the morning before the sun was up, and then early evening they would come and they would draw water from these wells. They would carry these jars with them and would carry them on their shoulders or their heads, and they were often carried in, in these clay pots that were heavy and and as she's coming, she's thinking about all the work that goes into getting water from the well. And how much better would it be if she didn't have to put in all that work, all that effort? And so here she's creating a wish list. Yes, yeah, that's what I want. I want it to be easier for me. I want it to be more convenient for me. But the second thing is 
is a little more obscure. We're going to learn more about it as we continue in this text. But she says, and then I won't have to come here anymore. Why wouldn't she want to come to this well? When they would go to the well, these women, as part of their responsibilities, they would do it as a community. They would come together. They would celebrate. They would talk about their families and their lives and everything that was going on. It was a part of their, their social life. But for this woman, it was very unique and very different. And so for Jesus to offer living water wouldn't just change the convenience of drawing water daily. It would change the trajectory of her social life. You say, Pastor, where do you see that? That's a great question. Let's keep reading. Verse 16. Jesus is going to do something that is miraculous. He's going to meet this woman where she's at. He's going to speak to a need in her life that she doesn't even realize she has. He's going to validate his message that he's going to give to her. He says, go and get your husband, Jesus told her. I, I don't have a husband, the woman replied. And Jesus says, you're right. You don't have a husband. You've had five husbands and you aren't even married to the man you're living with right now. You certainly spoke the truth. Even in Samaritan culture, where there was much more freedom in their life choices, it was only considered acceptable to be married two, maybe three times. A majority of the time that an individual would be remarried would be after the death of a spouse. A husband passes away and a, a widow is remarried. Even in their culture, to be married four or five times was considered egregious, outrageous, outlandish, completely unacceptable. And even in their liberal culture, it was considered completely unacceptable to be living with someone that was not your spouse. To be engaging in premarital sex was consistent culturally with sin for them as well. Jesus speaks right to the heart of the matter with this woman. Not just the condition of her flesh, but the condition of her soul. And he speaks in a manner that is consistent with the supernatural. Jesus doesn't know this woman. She doesn't know Jesus. He would have no way of knowing these things about her. Jesus uses this as an on-ramp, as a bridge to speak into her life. He looks for this ground that he can take to begin to present his message in a way that she would better understand. And he said, go and get your husband. And you can see her shrinking back inside of herself and saying very sheepishly, I'm not married. And then Jesus turns, not in a condemnation, but out of conviction. He says, you're right, you don't have a husband. You've been married five times and the guy you're living with now isn't even your husband. What do we do? when the things that are most egregious in us are presented right in front of our faces. Do you know what human nature does? Change the subject. Blame cast. Point the finger at others. Talk about something entirely different. How about them bears? You ever have an awkward moment like that? We had an awkward moment like that in our family several years ago, more than a decade ago. One of my... One of my uh, dad's siblings, uh, we were taking pictures for Christmas and 
I don't even remember what happened. I, re I really don't. It was, we have a huge family. I'm one of six and everybody, everybody has lots of kids and it's just chaos all the time. And something happened and my aunt screamed out through the whole house. Christmas is ruined. And my dad said, all righty then. Change the subject completely. Somebody turn on a game. Quick, who wants seconds? Mom, do we have pie? We didn't want to address what was really going on. We just wanted to change the subject. And this is what this woman does. Her sin is presented right in front of her. And Jesus points it out. And verse 19, here's what she does. She begins to compartmentalize. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship while we Samaritans claim it's here at Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worshiped? You see, from where they're standing, it's, it's, it's evident you can see where Mount Gerizim is and this is considered holy even today to the Samaritans. And in this region, it's considered a holy place and they have their own temple there and their own worship there. And they have their own iteration of what this monotheistic approach to worshiping God looks like. But there's this comparison. Why do you worship over there and we worship here? Why do you worship at this time and we worship at that time? Why do you worship this way and we worship that way? Jesus replied in verse 21, Believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You see, this woman is beginning to compartmentalize Everything in her life, including worship. Verse 22, you Samaritans know very little about the one you worship. While we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. Two things quickly to understand about this. Jesus isn't saying we're superior and he's not saying we're better. By saying that you Samaritans know very little about the ones you worship, the Samaritans, they hold tightly to the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But if you understand anything about the Old Testament, you know you have the creation story, you know you have the Torah or the law, and out of that you have the historical writings, the historical narratives, and from that you've got the wisdom literature, Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Songs, and out of that you've got prophets, you've got four major prophets with lamentations being included in that as a fifth one that Jeremiah writes, and then you've got 12 minor prophets. And in each one of these, in each one of these historical writings, we begin to see unfold before our eyes, the nature of God, the person of God, the relationship that God establishes between himself and his people. We see this unfold and we learn all the more about God through how he interacts with humanity. But if all you have is a book of rules and regulations, and if all you have is just little bits and pieces of history, it's very short-sighted. You don't understand, you don't know the fullness, you don't have the full body of what it is you're studying or looking at. And here, Jesus isn't condemning her, he's simply stating a fact that the Samaritans hold to five books of the Bible, but they don't understand the person, the character, the nature, the consistency of God through the history and through the wisdom and through the prophets, through the, the truth that will come forth. So he's saying, you're limited in your knowledge. You're very narrow-sighted because you only have a little bit of information. But we Jews, we have all of this that has been given to us as a gift by God. We understand God, the nature of God, the person of God, the character of God, the calling of God, the relationship that Yahweh has established with humanity and what this looks like in our lives. And then he says, and we, we know about salvation because salvation comes from the Jews. 
He's not suggesting that the Jews are superior. He's saying that if you do your homework, if you do the research, then you understand the line of David and you understand where the Messiah, the anointed one, the Mashiach is going to come from. And he's saying, we know this because we hold tightly to the word of God. Friends, this is the point in which I think it's imperative for me as your pastor to stress to you the importance, the significance, and the value of studying the Bible. If we do not study the word of God, how can we fully understand the one that has created us, that loves us, that has given up everything for us that we are going to spend eternity with? We need this. And not just in part, but in whole. We need to hold tightly to sound doctrine, entire doctrine, whole doctrine. Not theologies that make the most sense to us. It's easy to pull things out of scripture and literally spin it and make it say whatever we want it to say. We do this from adolescence on up. I can, it's amazing I can say something to my kids. They'll literally use the same words I use, but change the inflection of their voice. And they said something totally different than what I intended to say. And we do that with scripture. And if I had to be really honest, I think most of us are just naive and we don't know better. It's what's been presented to us. But friends, it is critical that we understand the word of God in its entirety so that we know all the more who we are because of whose we are. And if we know that we're created in the image of God, then we want to live in the fullness of what that looks like. Then shouldn't we want to know even more about what that looks like? We're, we're, we're so curious about our, our heritage that we spend literally millions and millions. Two years ago, I did research and over $50 million had been spent globally on ancestry DNA. People wanting to spit into a, a vial and break open a little bit of blue preservative, shake it up and send it off and then be tied genetically to some history. And then from that, you can begin through genetic coding, determine who your ancestors are and And there's even platforms where you can reach out to them and begin to have these conversations. And there's so many people that are that are Googling and 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 they're looking and they're searching and they want to know more about what this looks like and where we're from. And what would that look like if we spent that same level of energy trying to understand who we are in Christ? You want to know what's expected of you as a follower of Jesus? Start right here. You want to know what it looks like to have. A God who is our Father, start right here. You want to know what it looks like to love humanity so much that you give up everything? Start right here. Guys, I cannot stress to you enough the importance, not just value add, but importance of studying studying the Word of God. Jesus says, you guys know just a little bit about the one you worship. You're very narrow-sighted. You've only adopted bits and pieces of it. But we Jews, we know because we have the whole, the totality of it. And then he says in verse 23, but the time is coming indeed, it's here now when true worshipers, authentic worshipers, that word true there, it literally means genuine or complete. Genuine or complete. So when genuine worshipers, when complete worshipers will worship the Father, worthyship, to celebrate, to adore, to, 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 to give credence and credit, will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. That word spirit is pneuma. 
Numa means breath. It's like a wind that runs through the trees and you can see and you can feel and you can hear the effects of the very breath. We are called to worship God this way, like a breath that you can see and you can feel and you can hear the impact and the effects and it's evident and it's obvious and it sweeps across us and it sweeps through us. That is literally what the word pneuma means. And Jesus said that we are called to worship the the father of all creation in spirit, in pneuma, and in truth, authentic, complete, genuineness. But we have to ask why? Why Why does God want us to worship him this way? And this would have been so profound for this woman who has built her entire religious relationship off of do's and don'ts and compartmentalizations. You can hear it in her language. You worship there, we worship here. You worship at that time, we worship at this time. You worship that way and we worship this way. And this is still the language of the people today. Rather than focus on the centrality of Christ in the body of believers, We focus on how that church worships versus how this church worships. The way their pastor preaches versus the way we preach. The way that their church is set up versus the way our church is set up. The music that they play versus the music that we play. The programs that they have versus the program that we have. The times that they meet versus the times that we meet. What they believe versus what we believe. And I'm not suggesting even for a moment that there are not inconsistencies between denominations and between believers, between brothers and sisters in Christ about theology and doctrine and what we believe and what we practice. And we've got to be very careful to hold to sound doctrine, to whole and entire teachings, to the sola scripture, to the word of God alone, and allow the word of God to do the work of God so that we can abide in the will of God. We need to be very prudent in understanding what the scripture teaches so that when we are presented with strange new ideas, we can know whether it's consistent with the word of God. But rather than focus on what divides us, we are called to look at Christ, the one who unites us. I don't have to appreciate everything that these other churches are doing, but my prayer each and every Sunday is, God, I pray that you would pour out a fresh anointing on every pastor in our community that is going to preach a God-centered, gospel-focused message to your glory and for your benefit, and may you get all the credit. That is my prayer. My prayer isn't that they'll come here in droves and leave other churches because we preach better or we look better or we sound better or we do it better. You know what we do? We do what we feel God is calling us to do to the best of our abilities in absolute surrender and out of obedience. Not everybody's going to like it. I don't pretend that everybody sitting here this morning likes it. I go to what Pastor Caleb said. It's not for you. (laughs) That might be the best line I've ever heard from this stage. I can say whatever I want. If you disagree, I say, well, it just isn't for you. Listen, what happens, believer, when we could look on at others, not by our differences, but by the fact that each and every one of us is created in the very image of God? What happens, believer, when we can look at the lives of others that we don't agree with how they live and remember that Christ died for all, once and for all. And that our sin is no different than theirs. Sure, according to humanity, there's different standards. Lying doesn't carry the same weight as murder. But in God's eyes, all sin separates us from him. We've experienced the compassion that comes from people presenting the gospel to us that it's changed our lives forever and that we'll never be the same again. 
What happens when we let that be our driving force rather than what divides us? What happens when we let the gospel inform us? Jesus says, a time is coming when the Father is going to look for worshipers in spirit, in pneuma, the breath of God that literally sweeps over us all and in truth, genuine, authentic, and entire. Now, why would Jesus present this as a manner of how God is looking for worshipers? Well, look here. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way because, verse 24, for God is what? God is spirit. And so the best way to relate with someone is to identify who they are, where they're at, and begin to find common ground with them. Not compromise, but find common ground. And with God, rather than asking God to conform to our likeness, we are called to conform all the more to the image of God. And if he's spirit, then we must worship in spirit. We must allow the spirit to worship or to, to, to pour over us as we worship. But here's the danger even in churches, and we're going to talk about this next week. With the, the time of year that we're in with presence, we're going to look at spiritual gifts and the presence that we receive from God. But let me tell you, while I believe in the absolute full work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, there is a danger in that. As followers of Jesus, we can end up worshiping the created instead of the creator. The things that God created as avenues for us to worship him, we can actually end up worshiping the created things rather than the one who created them. And so if we want to know the fullness of what worship looks like, we've got to understand this pneuma so that we can operate in that, so we can, we can we, we worship out of a place of spirit and truth. This is the kind of worshiper that God is looking for. For the spirit, for God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Look at verse 25. We're going to round this out. Verse 25 says, the woman said, I know the Messiah is coming. History tells us, prophecy tells us, oral tradition tells us, the one who is called Christ. And when he comes, he's going to explain everything to us. Then Jesus told her. Now look at this. Look at this. This is profound. If you look at verse 26, it says right there, I am the Messiah. The way that Jesus would have presented this I am statement is reminiscent of Exodus Chapter 3, Moses, when he is encountered by God in the form of a what? A burning bush. And he says, when he's told, he's instructed, he's implored to go into Egypt and to be a, a spokesman, an ombudsman, an ambassador for God to the nation of Israel to deliver the Hebrews from captivity from 400 years of tyranny and depression in slavery and captivity to go before Pharaoh. And Moses said, but, but who am I supposed to tell him has the authority and the power to even ask something so audacious? And God says, you tell him, I am that I am. Now, oral tradition in history, remember I said that even the Samaritans held tightly to the Pentateuch, the, the Penta, five, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. This is found in Exodus chapter three. So when Jesus here says, I am, there is authority, there is a fullness, a completeness. Jesus is drawing out this word picture that would have captivated her attentions and would have drawn a parallel to these things that she's already known and already believed. Jesus says, I am the Messiah, the anointed one, the promised one. I am the Messiah. And this revelation is, it is, it is, it is transformative. It is life changing. Verse 27, 
Just then the disciples came back. They were shocked to find him talking to a woman, but none of them had the nerve to ask. How many of us are like that as followers of Jesus? We see something going on in the church, but we, ah, we're just not gonna say anything about it. Would you please understand we've got nine elders, nine lay elders and six pastors. We've got 15 people who are part of the leadership of this church that serve as elders. You are welcome and even encouraged to go and speak to anyone at any time. If you ever wonder why we do what we do here, what we believe, why we believe what we believe, you don't have to wait in line to get my opinions. Kevin Barnhill is the chairman of our elder board. Dane Livermore is the vice chairman of our elder board. Joe McBride is a trustee of our elder board. John Hundall is the secretary of our elder board. And then we've got several other men that serve at the behest of God. And collectively, collaboratively, we seek the Lord and his leadership in our lives through the word of God alone. I just would encourage you. The disciples, Jesus' own disciples come and they see what's going on and they begin to murmur about these things to one another. But they don't say anything to the leadership. I can't think of anything more devastating to a local church than people to gossip around a subject rather than going to the leadership to find out why we do what we do. But if you do come, I invite you to come, but I invite you to bring your Bible with you. I don't want you to come based on your personal opinions. I don't. I'm not interested in what you think. I'm interested in what the word of God says. We allow the word of God to do the work of God so that we can abide in the will of God. Newsflash. I don't always like what the word of God says. Luke 9, 23. Look it up. Look it up. You want to be my disciple? Take up your cross, lay down your life, and follow me. For if you want to, you want to save your life, you're going to lose it. But if you want to experience full life, you're going to surrender your life to me. Well, that sounds pretty, pretty crazy when you actually put it in perspective of what Jesus did when he took up the cross. But it's not up for me to decide if I like it or not. God said it, I believe it, and now it's up to me to live it. And I can do so only by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit at work in my life. All right, let's finish up together, church. These guys are talking. They don't, they don't want to ask Jesus, what do you want with her? Or why are you talking to her? Verse 28. The woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village telling everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came and they're streaming from the village to see him. Uh, there is so much to this. I encourage you to read the remainder of the story. Jesus goes on to teach in parables. And then ultimately we see that this woman in her invitation draws all of these people from Galilee and the surrounding community of Samaria to come and see. I mean, it's, it's crazy. I don't mean, I'm sorry, from Sychar and from Samaria to see. And their lives are changed forever. The fact that this woman leaves her jar shows that she cares more about eternal life than about her physical life. Why was she at the well? To get water. What do we need to live? Water. She left that behind because of this message. What does she do? She ran. Where did she run? She ran to Samaria. Why was she at the well at 12 o'clock at the hottest time of day? Because she was not welcomed by her own community. She was literally excommunicated. She was an outcast. They wanted nothing to do with her. Even by their standards, she was considered unclean because she'd been married five times and the guy she was living with wasn't even married. She was considered no better than a prostitute. And this woman, knowing that her reputation was on the line, cares more about her encounter with Christ than what you think. It is so significant, this encounter that she has with Christ, that she forfeits her reputation, what little she has left, and she runs 
full steam ahead into this community that has exiled her. And she says, come and see this man who has told me everything I've ever done in my life. Could he be the Messiah, the anointed one? You've got to come and see. Church, how much different would our lives look? How much different would this church and every other church like it look if we took our faith so serious and we got so excited about the life change that comes from knowing Jesus that we went into the community at large and said, come and see. Come and see what Jesus has done for me. Come and see how Jesus has transformed my life. Come and see a man who who has forgiven everything I've ever done and he's given me new life and a new hope and a a fresh start. Come and see. Come and see why my marriage is different. Come and see why I see the world from different lenses and a new perspective. Come and see where this change comes from. It's not a pop cultural change. It's a life that is in Christ and him alone. Come and see. What would happen when we cared more about living out our calling than we did about our reputation? This woman forfeits everything, leaves everything behind to tell people about Jesus. I want to ask you a really hard question, but I need you to think about it. When was the last time you told somebody about Jesus? When was the last time you told somebody about how Jesus changed your life? If I told you the statistic about people who have shared their faith with someone else, it would make your head spin. Let's just say that people sharing their faith is the, ex- is, is, uh, the exception and not the rule. When was the last time you were so, so caught up in excitement for how Jesus has transformed your life that you told others about it and invited them to come and be a part of what God is doing in your life? You see, the problem with the Western church today is that we assume that we pay a pastor to do that. <laughs> That's not why I'm here. I'm here to honor a calling that was on my life and then hopefully to equip us as a body of believers to share our faith collectively so that we can go and tell others about how Jesus has transformed our lives. So I want to share five things with you that we learned from this story. Five things about worship that we get from this story. Five things that as we lean in, we should walk away with. Number one, the first thing that we should see in this is that worship isn't a wish list of what we get. Worship isn't a wish list of what we get. Yeah, I think that's how we begin to look for churches. I hear, I hear people all the time talking about how they're church shopping. Have you ever heard that term? They go from one church to another. Do you know that in the, in the Bible, that's literally considered divorce? That we, are, we see this consistent in scripture, that God himself refers to himself as the groom and the church as the what? The bride. And Jesus Christ is the what? So we need to understand that this term church shopping is inconsistent with scripture. What we should do is look for a body of believers that hold tightly to the full gospel, entire, complete, inerrant, perfect, flawless, and that teach from the full Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, and teach the whole truth. We should look for a church that is unafraid to present the gospel. We should look for a church that is active and alive, that is on the move. We should look for a church that is living out their faith and we should align with them. And then I said it a few weeks ago, a lot of you thought it was funny, some of you didn't. 
I appreciate the ones who thought it was funny. When I said that it, none of us should look for a perfect church because if we find one, well, number one, it's like a unicorn. They don't exist. But if you do find one, you shouldn't go there because you'll screw it up. What I was trying to say is church is filled with a lot of imperfect people who are desperately seeking for a perfect God. And I think, while I don't expect you to always agree with everything we do, we should never approach church as a wish list of what we get from it. I have never seen in scripture where, ever in scripture, where we're called to establish a church based on what we get from it. Little preview. Next year and the year after, we're gonna do a study on the book of Acts. We're gonna go verse by verse, word for word, through the entire New Testament book of Acts. I am so excited, it's unreal. I'm gonna, I, I almost just wanna tell you right now what our annual theme is for next year and what we're gonna do, it's unbelievable. I'm so excited, but I'll, I'll leave it for now. Worship isn't a wish list of what we get. You don't get to get up and say, man, I, I, they need to sing my songs and dress the way I want them to dress and do the things I want them. It's not a wish list of what we get. That's not what worship is. Worship isn't a task list of what we do. There are whole systems of religion out there, people, that religion is based on what we do. How many times we say a prayer, the ways in which we say a prayer, the acts that we do to be good enough. Worship is not about what we do. It's, 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 not, a, it's not a task list of what we do that we compartmentalize and, and then we just check it off and go through the, the motions. That's not what worship is. Worship is a lifestyle. Worship isn't something that we compartmentalize and we go to work on this day and we have our family time during this spot on our calendar and we're with our friends over here and, and, and when it comes to Saturday, it's college football and when it comes to Sunday, it's, it's NFL football and, and when it comes to the, you know, the wintertime, it's, it's Nebraska volleyball. I'm a huge Nebraska volleyball fan, by the way. It's the only team that wins in Nebraska. <laughs> Uh, 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 you know, we, 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 tend to, we tend to compartmentalize our lives and we've made a compartmentalization out of our worship too, haven't we? And when we just go to church and we just do the church thing and, and, we, and we feel accomplished. But that's not what worship is. Worship isn't a list of things to do or not to do. Worship is a lifestyle. The Father is looking for worshipers to worship in spirit and in truth, in pneuma. That word pneuma, it literally means Breath as in the very breath that fills our lungs so that we might sustain life. What happens when we approach worship as a way of living, not doing? That's what we're called to, worship in spirit and in truth. And we're gonna focus on the truth next week as well. What it means to be genuine, authentic, and complete. So two more things I'll leave you with. We are not called to compartmentalize our faith in worship let me read that again. We are not called to compartmentalize our faith in worship. Instead, we are called to live out of faith as worship. You see that? We are called to live out of faith as worship. Spirit and truth. How are you worshiping today? Are you going through the motions? Are you doing what you think you have to do? Are you worshiping with the understanding that the creator of the cosmos, the one who holds life 
in the very palm of his hands is spirit. And we are called to worship in spirit and in truth as a way of life. When we worship that way, we are so overcome with the miraculous and the miracle maker that we can't keep it to ourselves. We have to go and share it. And so I would ask you, who are you gonna share your faith with this week? All right, I hear lots of little kids in the hallway, so that's my time. That's my cue. My staff's getting creative on how to tell me to shut up. (laughs) Father, thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for this incredible encounter that you had with this woman, this Samaritan woman, and how her life was changed forever. Thank you that out of this life change, she ran into her community to tell others about you. Lord, I pray that your word would rattle around in the front of our minds and would be solidified at the core of our hearts. Help us understand that worship isn't a wish list of what we want or a task list of what we do, but it's a byproduct of our faith in you. And Lord, I pray that each one of us today would adopt this attitude and understand that we get to worship as a lifestyle, not just here on Sundays, but every hour of every day. We love you, Jesus. Amen.